Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Ancient History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Robert Morstein Marx, author of the book Julius Caesar and the Roman People. Bob, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Mark. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Okay. Well, I'm a professor of classics at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I'm sitting here in my office in sunny uh, California. Uh, it's a beautiful day. Um, let's see. I'm I'm fairly senior. I've written three books on the Roman Republic and co-edited another one. Getting on in years, uh, but my uh, my sort of credentials are uh, uh, an Oxford BA MA when I was very young, and then a PhD from Berkeley, and so I've come full circle and I'm back in California, and I'm very <laughs> glad to be here. <laughs> well, there there are a lot worse places to end up. <laughs> um, so, what led you to write a book about Julius Caesar and the Roman people? Well, Julius Caesar. Uh, Essentially, you can't escape Julius Caesar if you're going to be a Roman historian. Even if your interests lie elsewhere, um, you're you know you're always beginning or ending your courses <laughs> with Julius Caesar. If you're teaching a course on the Roman Republic, you're ending with Caesar. If you're teaching a course on the Roman Empire, you're very likely at least casting a significant look back at Caesar. So he's sort of the alpha to omega of of, of Roman history. Um, very controversial as well. Uh, as I note a couple times in the, in the book, he gets people's blood pumping. Um, and so he's a, you know, attractively controversial uh, figure to, to take on at some point. And the thing about Caesar is that, uh, you know, other, next to, I don't know, a few other historical characters like uh, Jesus or, or, or I don't know, a, a few others, Napoleon and so on, uh, the scholarship on Caesar is massive and it's been going on for centuries. And so this is kind of a daunting thing. He's kind of the, in some ways, he feels like the Everest of Roman historical figures. <laughs> and, you know, so it always, I think, to some extent entices and, and daunts one. But um, in the end, uh, curiosity sort of won out, I suppose. It, it, it's fascinating that you frame it that way, because I'm thinking back to one of the things you wrote in your book, which was that. Uh, it, it, you quoted uh, another scholar who said that really the only person of the era of this era that you could actually do a biography on is is uh, Cicero. And yet, as you explain, your book is not a traditional biography as such. What exactly is your approach to understanding Caesar's life, and 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 how exactly does it in, incorporate the Roman people into it? Yes, well, I I come to this as a historian. Uh, not as a biographer. And what that means to me uh, is that, um, you know, the, the disciplines are somewhat distinguished, uh, or the genres, I suppose one might say. Um, history is going to be focused on essentially historical problems, uh, usually matters of, uh, of causation, uh, and, you know, of, of real impact for uh, a surrounding society. Um, whereas biography is tracing, if I understand it correctly, tracing a character and the development of that character. Um, 
I didn't want to try to do that with Caesar, partly because of what you just said. I remember sitting in a lecture by the great Peter Brunt in, uh, at Oxford and hearing him say that, you know, Cicero is really the only figure about whom we have enough information to write a biography. And that's true. We have virtually something like a thousand letters and, I mean, giving a very intimate portrait of his, uh, his thoughts at all, all, all times uh, of his life or various times of his life. Whereas we have nothing of the kind for Caesar. There's no way really to penetrate into his uh, innermost thoughts. Uh, and so I preferred to set that aside. In fact, I think that's been, even for historians, approaching Caesar as, as simply an important historical character in this drama of the late Roman Republic. I think historians have tended too much, for my taste, to feel they could get really inside the head of this character and know what he was truly about. Well, you know, we only know what people are truly about from their actions and what they do. So I preferred as a historian to stick with uh, the Caesar's known public actions. It's not impossible if we had a treasure trove of his intimate letters that one might venture something that, that probed more into his deep character. But that just doesn't exist. So I preferred to leave that all aside. And that also means leaving aside a lot of these, um, you know, aspects of Caesar's life that get a certain amount of play, like his, his, uh, his curious romance, if that's what it was, with the young Cleopatra uh, during the Civil War, sort of setting the wars aside for months as he, you know, went on a Nile cruise with this, you know, 20, 21-year-old uh, young woman. Uh, or, you know, other moments such as being captured by pirates. Everybody knows that story about his, you know, being insulted that they weren't demanding a high enough ransom for him and so on. And these are sort of lovely anecdotes and uh, fun stories, but, you know, really have very little bearing on the importance of Caesar as a, um, uh, as a historical figure, as a Roman historical figure. So I organized the book around what I thought were uh, the key controversial moments of Caesar's public career, uh, to be sure, arranged in a chronological series, because otherwise it would be much too bewildering, um, but examining in each case some sort of significant point of controversy, controversy about Caesar's public actions in that period that, you know, could really, that I could really dig into. It's an approach that uh, as you use it, you uh, address a lot of assumptions and uh, I might even go so far as to say misconceptions that have been built up around Caesar's life, certain things that have fallen into the, the even the popular parlance, like, say, crossing the Rubicon. And as you explain, you, that you your in your approach, you provide a very different interpretation of Caesar based upon this examination. I was wondering if you could explain the the, the premises that you're taking off from that are different than the common assumptions that have been built up around Julius Caesar regarding his life and his impact upon the Roman Republic. Right. Well, um, I I set out in. I tried to set out in the introduction some of the fundamental premises that that guide the study, uh, guide guide the book. Um, so one is um, actually um, that we have to pay much closer attention to the Roman people as a political agent in this uh, period of the Roman Republic than has been typical for a very long time. Now I'm not in in this 
part of the project. I'm not breaking, this isn't sort of groundbreaking because actually this is the, one might almost say the tail end of a sort of revolution in the study of the Roman Republic that's been going on uh, ever since the 1980s um, when uh, led by a, a great Oxford Roman historian named Fergus Miller, we started uh, looking more closely at the possibility that that the people played a, a very significant role by means of their votes. Uh, they voted for all legislation. They elected all magistrates. Uh, you know, really had, and it was a in a kind of formal sense, it was a direct democracy. There, it wasn't a representative democracy. So, in you know, in various ways, the popular element or what uh, the ancient uh, historian and political thinker Polybius called the democratic element of this republic was uh, was apparently quite significant. And I've done a fair amount of work over the decades showing that this is um, this really was significant even in the late Roman Republic, which has often been dismissed as a phase when you know the the you know the republic really wasn't functioning as it should anymore, and it was just a battle among. Uh, elite figures for dominance with their private armies and so on and so on. And that, that I think has been steadily refuted over the last few decades and, uh, and, and it has been shown that in quite a number, a surprising number of cases in the last, you know, 80 years or so of the Rome, uh, of the Roman Republic, that the people with their votes uh, imposed a significant, you know, course correction on the, uh, on the policy taken by, uh, by uh, the Senate, who were, you know, generally understood to be well-informed leaders of the state, but still, you know, might get it wrong sometimes. And so the people generally led by some magistrate or some uh, official like a Roman tribune might question that policy and propose a law that would, you know, uh, have a real impact. So, uh, so that was kind of, I would say, a revolution over the last, what is it now, you know, 40 years or so of the study of the Roman Republic. But that uh, argument has generally taken place at a fairly abstract level uh, and a sort of synchronic level that is not tracing change over time very much. And so I was kind of curious about whether introducing a stronger popular element in our story of the late Roman Republic and specifically Caesar's career that's so crucial for the story of the fall of the Republic would actually change the picture. And of course, uh, that, that's where the title comes from, Julius Caesar and the Roman people, um, emphasizing his role as a, uh, as a Republican leader uh, who quite frequently, though not always, resorted to what was called popular politics, that is appealing to popular support, popular favor, and so on, against the sort of sometimes rather closed ranks of the, uh, of the oligarchy. Um, so that's one important premise. And another, as, as um, you know, will strike anyone once they uh, move, work their way into the book a bit, is uh, a sort of warning caveat, one might say almost rejection of, uh, of the tendency to read the story as if 
it's determined by its end point. This is the perspective I often call the teleological perspective, as if as if the telos, the end point in Greek, is what we're you know leading up to, and so the per, the function of the historian is just to sort of point to the points that lead up to that end point. Now that that can of course you know be useful to uh, to clarify some questions that were bewildering to contemporaries at the time, but it can also be very misleading because the way things turn out is often pretty paradoxical. Uh, it can go really, really very much the wrong way. Um, uh, and, um, and so the, and, and, what I am especially warning against is the is the uh, effects of this kind of teleological approach uh, on both the examination of Caesar as a historical character and on the story of the late Roman Republic. Both stories have been dominated by a, a teleology that is very hard to get away from. The first teleology pertaining to Caesar himself being that, you know, since he allows him either makes himself or allows himself to be made uh, dictator for life at the end of his life, that sort of proves that that was what he was after all along. That was just his, his end point. And, and then we can tell the story bit by bit from his earliest, the earliest stage of his career as if it's uh, just a progressive realization of this uh, objective, of this goal. And the other teleology that has been really dominant is the idea that um, the Roman Republic was, after all, kind of dead already. It was just a Potemkin Republic, really, just waiting to, to crumble as soon as somebody sort of nudged it a bit. And Caesar sort of is thought to have, by, men, by some, to have applied that nudge. Um, now, that has been under fire for some time. In fact, it was my own PhD supervisor, teacher, uh, Eric Gruen, now retired at Berkeley, who, who first pointed out that, you know, actually the late Roman Republic proves if you examine the facts rather than, you know, looking at this story as the expression of a sort of arc, a trajectory toward destruction, if you look at the facts, it looks pretty vigorous, virtually right down to uh, the outbreak of a cycle of civil wars that would ultimately destroy it. But, you know, this has been a controversial theory. People have not always gotten on board. People often have sometimes, you know, kind of parodied it as if it means that, you know, the end of the Republic was just some sort of unaccountable accident. And and so I thought, well, you know, this this is another teleology that, you know, we really need to be careful of because there are good reasons to think that the Republic was not uh, on its deathbed in the 50s. So, you know, if you strip away those two teleologies, uh, Caesar aiming to be autocrat, almost aiming to found the empire, which was really the legacy of his heir, not of Caesar himself, and the Republic being, you know, tottering on the verge of destruction, uh, you end up with a story that, you know, is kind of foreclosed right at the beginning. And uh, I think with the help of that first premise, injecting a closer look at popular politics and the role of the people uh, in Caesar's, you know, specific type of leadership, I thought there was a, a new way to look at the story and perhaps a, a really a new story to tell. One of the points you make, and I just want to uh, elaborate upon this before we, we uh, go further into the book, it, that you make in the book, that you make in uh, throughout the book, which I thought was really interesting, was how so much of that perspective of of uh, of 
the, the Republican system's failing and, and, and Caesar as sort of the assassin of the Republic, if, if you will, uh, come from the fact that they're, they're written by the uh, you know, people like Cicero, who, you know, is enormously influential in terms of our, in terms of our, uh, you know, surviving record of the Republic. And yet he's coming at it from a perspective where he is demonstrably on the outs. And you might even argue he has a, a bit of an axe to grind in terms of, you know, <laughs> in terms of, you know, blaming Caesar for, 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 uh, you know, or, 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 or tagging Caesar as the, as the, as the responsible party. And, and, and I, I thought that was, that, that was a point that, that, you know, help to underscore this, that it's not just something that, that modern historians are doing, but in, in a sense that it has been happening from the beginning. And, and sometimes you have to, you know, it, it examine those sources just a tad more critically to, to kind of take that into consideration. Yeah, no, I, I, yes, thanks for bringing up that point. That is, I think, really crucial that, um, you know, so much of what has shaped our conception of Caesar as the the assassin of the republic as you so eloquently put it um is you know is this enormous uh set of writings that cicero left behind i mean i i think listeners to the podcast may not be aware that you know virtually all of the contemporary of the solid eyewitness contemporary evidence we have for this period uh, that I focus on, the period of Caesar's career, um, comes from Cicero, who very much has skin in the game and has an axe to grind, as, as you put it. Now, I, I want to be careful here. I actually, I, I, I teach Cicero a lot. I love Cicero. Cicero is a, a fascinating character, an incredible intellectual. I mean, if we only had politicians who had his, you know, wisdom and range of knowledge, it would be, you know, not not to mention eloquence. Uh, it would be a very different uh, world we live in. But that doesn't make him, you know, sort of infallible, and it certainly does not make his perspective one that we should necessarily all. Uh, agree with Cicero was was quite conservative, at least uh, in his when he became a senior uh, consular in the in the Roman Senate. He was uh, quite conservative in his viewpoints. He was very hostile, for example, to agrarian reform, uh, debt, uh, you know, relief, those kinds of things. He was very hostile to. Although when it came down to the political workings of the state, he was not as extreme as some others. He, he was more pragmatic than, for example, um, his, his younger contemporary Marcus Cato uh, in understanding the need for political compromise, understanding the need for the Roman people to at least be persuaded that their interests were look, being looked after, uh, and so on. So there was a range of viewpoints, and Cicero among Roman senators probably stands somewhere, probably stood somewhere in the middle, or maybe, you know, maybe a bit to the right of middle, but, you know, pretty close to the middle. So he was not an extremist. But nevertheless, when uh, our view of this period is dominated by his voice and in particular by some very, very compelling evidence, which is, as I said, almost a thousand letters, uh, many of them very personal letters, you know, uh, noting some, you know, I mean, you know, commenting very freely on the events of the day, the personalities of the day, things that he certainly didn't want to make public. I mean, that gives you, there's a certain sort of appearance of just unvarnished truth that comes out at you from that kind of 
uh, medium, from that kind of source material that, um, that, that takes a long time for one to sort of back away from a little bit and just sort of recognize that this is one person's very, very selective uh, viewpoint. I was I was trained actually first at at Oxford. I mentioned that, and and we developed a very uh, things have changed a bit, but at the time we had this very almost fundamentalist approach that if something was not you know kind of explicitly stated in a source, it was questionable, it was dubious, we you know we doubted it. Well, you can see the problem is when when our sources are virtually all Cicero and some later sources that are often based on Cicero and good part, you know that 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 you know biases the story very heavily in a in a certain direction. So let's take a look at uh, those elements of Caesar's life that uh, touch upon the contemporary Roman political system and that. It, illustrate the degree to which it was a participatory Republican order. You start by looking at uh, Caesar's early life. Uh, the, of course, the, the early biographical details are, are, are the personal details are, are, are oftentimes very speculative, but you, we do have evidence of his early engagement with politics and you use that to eliminate that, illuminate that viewpoint. What, what's going on in, in his early life that, that, that shows him as, and, and his, it shows his place in the Roman political system. Well, you know, it's almost more a sense of his um, his relative insignificance at a very early stage. I say relative insignificance because there was one really notable thing: his his winning this great military this honor for military valor when he was about twenty. That certainly, you know, was eye catching. But after that, um, he, he followed a very, you know, routine path in his career. Um, nothing very special standing out, I suppose, until his edileship, which was a kind of medium rank uh, magistracy in the mid 60s, when he, you know, he, he kind of he, he put on some splashy games and and you know, uh, and and restored some monuments of his uh, of his uncle Marius that certainly caught some attention and made people some people's blood pressure uh, go up. But again, we see you know we see actually a, a man working within the normal confines of a Roman aristocratic's uh, aristocratic career. We have to remember that. Caesar was a, a member of the Roman nobility. I, I think people often sort of picture him as somehow hostile to the aristocracy, but he was from the very heart of the aristocracy. He was not only a Roman uh, noble that is descent in a family that had he held the consulship at one time or another, uh, but one that had held many consulships uh, and, in fact, was uh, was uh, had so had had political eminence going back so far that it was a patrician family, which was the kind of creme de la creme of the Roman uh, aristocracy. Uh, Caesar, you know, traces ancestry back to the sort of founder figure Aeneas, uh, mythical founder figure Aeneas and, and the goddess Venus. I mean, this is, um, you know, a very, uh, very uh, aristocratic fellow who proceeds aiming at holding the the various magistracies on the ladder of a political career, always at the earliest possible date, you know, very successful and so on, very ingratiating, having a certain, you know, um, skill at, um, at 
we should say maybe sort of building a public image and ingratiating himself with the public with things like um, games, not unique to him. And he didn't outdo, it seems, uh, his peers really in this regard, but he, he knew how to do it and was a very agreeable candidate and very successful. Um, I suppose where he really uh, comes to notice really, and also kind of steps into the light of day in our contemporary source material is in the year 63, which happens to be uh, the year of Cicero's consulship, when uh, not only does he manage to get himself elected praetor, which is the second from the top stage of a Roman political career, but he also kind of against all odds sort of surprises everybody by winning an election held in that year to replace the Pontifex Maximus, the, the chief uh, expert of religious law, kind of a priest, but more like an expert of religious law who had died in that year. Uh, normally, quite senior members of the Senate would uh, would win election to such a prestigious post. But Caesar, though at this point he was you know only 37, or quite a young man by the standards of the Roman gerontocracy, uh, actually won this election and and deeply insulted two very senior senators who who, who set out to kind of destroy him and, and failed afterwards. And it's in that year that as, as Praetor elect, actually, he wasn't even Praetor yet, but he gave a speech um, in the debate uh, about what to do with some conspirators who were rounded up by Cicero for, for plotting an overthrow of the state, what, to, what kind of penalty to inflict on them. A, a hearing was held in the Senate. And uh, all the senior senators, just one after another, said they, uh, they uh, proposed uh, or seconded the penalty of death for all five of these conspirators and perhaps four others who might be uh, apprehended. Uh, but uh, when it came time for Caesar to speak, and that was well down after all the most senior senators, he popped up and gave what was clearly a very powerful oration calling instead for life imprisonment, which was obviously a severe penalty, but not the extreme penalty of death. And it had the advantage of not being explicitly contrary to Roman law. Uh, Caesar was careful about that and pointed out many times to the senators that um, that you know it was crucial for the Senate's decision to be free from not to be seen by the people in general as uh, an excessive, uh, as inflicting an excessive penalty on these men. Uh, in retrospect, this this decision would eventually be criticized, whatever it was, and the Senate, Cicero suggested, needed to be on the right side of that history. He failed in his uh, in his effort to get the death penalty. Um, set aside in this case, the Senate voted for death. The execution was carried out immediately afterwards, these five and maybe a few others. Um, so Caesar looked like he had been defeated in his first big appearance in a senatorial debate. But I, I would say, you know, history, and here's where a little retrospect maybe is useful. History actually proved him to be right when only five years later, Cicero, who had inflicted that death penalty, was sent into exile for having broken Roman law on this on this point. So, you know, um, and there's a lot of debate about what Caesar's purpose in making this argument was, because in in some ways it's a very attractive speech, uh, at least in 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 
the fullest version we have of the speech. He introduces some interesting arguments against the death penalty as a deterrent, which I think are, you know, some of the foundation, one of the foundational texts of, of, of thought on death penalty, on the death penalty and the efficacy of the death penalty. Uh, very attractive arguments in some respects, setting aside the emotion of the moment and taking a wider perspective on what is good for the state and what is even good for the Senate standing among the people, not to be seen to be giving in to excessive emotion and inflicting this penalty and so on. Uh, so it's it, it's a very interesting intervention, but but some people, of course, here's where the, the teleological perspective can really get mixed in. Some people who are convinced, especially from the ultimate outcome of the story, the end point, that Caesar really was scheming for absolute power from the very beginning, uh, would be inclined to take this intervention as actually an attempt to, you know, save these conspirators and somehow, you know, undermine the, uh, the senatorial authority and thus kind of lay the groundwork for his own, I suppose, stab at a, a coup d'etat. I mean, there's none of that in, in, in the, uh, you know, I would say in the authentic evidence, but it's very tempting once you've accepted that teleological perspective to retroject it into these moments <laughs> of Caesar's career. And though Caesar took an unpopular position, this it at most maybe slowed his rise in politics because soon, uh, within a few short years, he is uh, serving his in his first consulship. Uh, what do you see uh, during that phase of his career in which he is demonstrating that uh, you know aspect of, of Roman politics, the, the, the that you know, that uh, popular outreach and the fact that it's not necessarily the uh, a, a triumvirate in the sense with with with, uh, with Pompey and Crassus, where it's just three men in charge doing what right. they want, but is in fact part of a, a, a more of a you know connection to what's happening more uh, with the Republic in general. Yes. Well, uh, you know, scholars argue endlessly about um, about the events of Caesar's first consulship in 59. But but you're 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 pointing to the period just preceding that. So if we if we look at the period preceding his consulship, I think it is really important to emphasize, um, and I think most scholars would be with me on this, that Caesar follows a path that is a well-worn path for um, an aristocrat like himself aiming for the top. I mean, it was understood that a, a, a member of the Caesar family would be aiming for the consulship. You know, you virtually, you know, marked the calendar when you were, <laughs> you know, shortly after you were born and figured out the earliest date you would run for the consulship. And it was a point of honor to win the consulship or even the lower offices as well at the earliest date for which you were, uh, uh, when you were eligible. So, um, so we see Caesar proceeding from, from the point of this intervention in the Catalinarian debate uh, very much, and, and up to that point as well, very much in these kinds of, uh, you know, traditional efforts to cultivate popular favor uh, and ideally to stay on the good side of the Senate. Now, there is some question, I mean, C Caesar had a little bit of a rocky road with the Senate, precisely, I would say, precisely because of and after that intervention in the Catalinarian debate, which um, 
clearly some people thought was just plain a nuisance, that he was he was staying the Senate's hand and interfering with its effective handling of this crisis. Uh, Caesar's opponent in that debate, Cato, was very clear that, you know, if Caesar was suggesting something like life imprisonment, he must be in cahoots with the conspirators themselves. So this was a very, you know, this was a kind of a dangerous position he had taken up. Um, and not surprisingly, he does have a bit of a rough spot with the Senate itself for a little while after the execution of conspirators, because he had so blatantly come out against what the Senate uh, had done. Nevertheless, uh, he was also a canny politician, and he made sure not to burn his bridges. And um, he ends up after his praetorship, in which he had, you know, eventually sort of behaved, thought, been thought to have behaved himself pretty, pretty well, ended up with an assignment to um, to the uh, uh, province of Spain, as was normal for ex praetors to. Uh, be sent off to a province. Usually, you know, you just held the line, you just govern, you provided justice to Roman citizens who are in your province and, you know, dealt with any border problems that might be existing. Spain was not fully conquered, so there were predictable, you know, border issues. But Caesar took this moment, as some praetors, ex-praetors did, to shine militarily, um, to recruit soldiers, gather his allies, and launch an extraordinary expedition to the northwestern um, corner, really, of of Spain and a bit of Portugal um, today. Uh, And this, you know, caught the eye of both the Roman people and the Senate in in a positive sense, because it is important, any kind of attempt to understand Caesar as a political leader has to recognize that his main claim to authority uh, uh, and his main claim of achievement in his climb up through the ranks was his military capacity. Um, and uh, as an ex praetor he had the opportunity for the first time to show his uh, capacity as a general, and he did so in spades. Now, ultimately, in the conquest of Spain, it was not that big a deal, but it was a remarkable success that won him... Um, clearly a lot of um, uh, sort of popular favor as a, as a Roman hero, a general in the old mode, a successful general. Uh, and also, you know, in the Senate itself, he, uh, he won, if not approval for a triumph, at least the Senate was favoring uh, his celebrating a so-called triumph. It's important to re- recognize that the triumph was a big victory celebration, where a kind of a parade, parade entry of the returning army in general into the city of Rome that went through the streets and ended up on the Capitol, ended up uh, at the Temple of Jupiter, greatest and best, to give thanks for Jupiter's favor. But also it was the moment of glory for the, the general uh, himself and a big boost for uh, one's, um, you know, further claims to uh, popular, you know, election as consular or the like. So this was very well timed uh, for Caesar's electoral prospects to become consul, to come back to Rome in the year 60, just when he should be campaigning for the consulship and request, uh, as would be quite regular given his achievements in Spain, request a triumph uh, from the Senate. And the story we hear is that, you know, the the Senate was actually 
either did or was inclined to approve this because his military achievement was pretty much undeniable. But there was a, a technical problem. The technical problem was basically uh, that uh, that uh, the time for the elections to the consulship were 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 upon them. It was evidently early summer or so of the year sixty, and according to the normal practice and law, he would have to present himself in the city of Rome, in the in inside the walls of Rome uh, in order to declare his candidacy, to open his candidacy, uh, essentially. The problem with that for Caesar was that if he crossed the city boundary and entered into the city to declare his can candidacy for the consulship, which he clearly very much wanted, <laughs> that date had been marked in the calendar forever, um, he would necessarily lose the, uh, the legal power he needed, so-called imperium, to lead that triumphal parade. So he would be forfeiting his triumph if he just came into the city and registered, you know, sort of declared his candidacy in time. He asked for permission to have that declaration made through friends. And this is an exception that had been given in the past, uh, you know, seemingly not too rarely. Uh, and again, it's clear that the Senate broadly, the majority of the Senate favored this, but this is when Caesar's bête noir, Cato, who had faced him down and actually beaten him, I guess you could say, in the Catalinarian debate, um, objected and used the, the Roman method of the filibuster to talk out the meeting so that the Senate could not actually reach a decision on the question of this exemption, which meant that there was no alternative available to Caesar. He was not going to get the exception. He could have given up his hopes for a consulship in the next year, but instead he gave up the triumph. He crossed into the city uh, and, um, and, uh, and, and uh, declared himself for the consulship. Um, Cicero makes clear that he was clearly going to be elected. I mean, everything was favoring Caesar at this point, and, and surely his military achievement was a big part of that. The fact that he was just about to celebrate a triumph was a big part of that. Um, and also, I've already mentioned his sort of ability to uh, be an ingratiating candidate uh, was also, you know, uh, clear. Um, he was going to be elected consul and Caesar was not going to let anything, you know, stop him from that. But again, resuming, getting back to what you were asking in your question, following this path of being an ingratiating candidate and pursuing military success at the, at the first uh, military achievement at the first opportunity available to him was, you know, perfectly normal and no sign of, of sort of nefarious schemes. And that, but that also brings us to what is of probably his most uh, famous military achievements, and that's uh, his uh, years in Gaul. And, and this gets to what is the most prominent source that we have for Caesar, which, of course, are his own commentaries. And what you what you do in, in your book to address them is you get to the question as to exactly whom the audience was for them. And I, I thought it was an excellent way of getting at this, you know, the, the notion of his engagement with the Roman people, because as you explained, he's not writing this for 40 senators to read. 
he, he he's writing this for for a much broader audience, and it gives us that insight into it, you know as to the degree to which he sees himself as participating in a more of a broadly Republican process rather than a mere oligarchy. Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, now the 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 purpose and nature of these um, of these fascinating commentary commentaries or you might call them sort of memoirs or notes of his uh, uh, eight years of campaigning in Gaul um, uh, are well their nature is is disputed and I lay a new possibility on the table which is that they weren't actually intended as um, propaganda dispatches in a sort of information war, but an attempt to uh, kind of um, uh, uh, further his place in history by providing material for the future historians who would come along to write the story of this uh, extraordinary uh, career of conquest uh, later on. So that removes the memoirs of the commentarii a bit from the sort of propagandistic um, conception that uh, that has, I, I think, normally prevailed uh, for these, um, which I think, you know, I mean, has tended to suggest that Caesar's actions in Gaul were far more controversial among the Roman people and even the Senate than they actually were. You see, if, if you see them, if you see this record as a sort of informational weapon you're you're inserting it into a contest of of discord and you know partisan positioning there certainly were some people who hated caesar and would and in fact did seize on setbacks or uh even um you know possible atrocities committed by caesar at, at any you know whenever they could to make trouble for caesar but um but in fact, if you look at the record of responses to Caesar we have for these this long period of his absence after the consulship in Gaul, uh, we find that it was overwhelmingly positive. Um, so, sure, Cato, <laughs> our friend Cato, took the opportunity, you know, when uh, when. A special Thanksgiving celebration was being debated in the year fifty-five to honor, in effect, honor Caesar, even though technically it was a it was Thanksgiving to the gods that were being you know considered. He took the opportunity to bring up, and he must have had sort of some alternative sources of information other than what we read, because what we read is, you know, uh, in Caesar's memoirs is very much from Caesar's point of view. But Cato claimed that uh, Caesar had in effect, uh, treacherously had attacked a, um, uh, a uh, people of the Germans uh, on whom he was advancing, but during a period of a truce when they ought to have been protected by a sort of diplomatic immunity, if you like. And therefore he had actually, you know, offended the gods by this violation of diplomatic immunity. And therefore he should be handed over to the Germans uh, in order to expiate the uh, offense uh, so that the uh, consequences of God's anger did not fall on the Roman people. Um, Well, as 
Plutarch points out when he's describing this, nothing happened. I mean, <laughs> you know, historians tend to seize on this as a sign of how incredibly controversial Caesar's actions were. Um, but in fact, nothing happened. And I would suppose that people understood that Cato had it in for Caesar and was going to give quite a blistering speech when it came his turn to speak. But in fact, what was voted was a record number of days of Thanksgiving in Caesar's honor than had, you know, higher than had ever been given before. So the Caesar, I mean, sorry, the Senate, you know, actually pretty clearly went on record as strongly supporting what Caesar was doing. And in fact, it does this three times. These, these votes are, again, as I say, technically votes to give thanksgivings to the gods for a great victory, uh, a victory in Gaul that uh, was you know, achieved by Caesar and his army. Uh, but in fact, in practice, it was a step of glorification of the commander. And to have three sets of these votes go in his direction with no fewer than 55 sort of holidays set aside in, in some cumulatively to celebrate these victories in Gaul, I think, you know, shows that it's, it's not just it's not just the Roman people who uh, are very excited about these victories. And we have plenty of evidence for that. But also the Roman Senate is, you know, going on record as being very, very, you know, supportive of these uh, of these victories. It's kind of something we forget when we focus too much on on uh, Caesar's enemies, uh, such as uh, Cato. And incidentally, our, our old friend Cicero at this time is is eagerly cultivating Cicero, uh, Caesar's favor. <laughs> he, he gets a big loan from Caesar. He, his brother is serving as a high officer in Caesar's army. Uh, he, Cicero is always commenting uh, on how generous Caesar is with his, you know, treatment. Uh, whenever Cicero sends him a protege to take care of in the army of Gaul, Caesar takes him up as if he was one of his own and so on. So this is actually the period when relations between the two men were very, very good. And obviously you find no trace of these suggestions that Caesar was an aspiring autocrat in <laughs> Cicero's writings yeah. of this period. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it gets to your your point at the beginning of the book about the the how we tend to you know, read this teleologically. We we're, we're looking for signs of the the budding conflict during this during the period of the of the uh, of Caesar's time in Gaul, and and you also point out how this plays into how we've interpreted that early point of this confrontation how we've taken we've we've taken the, the the crossing of the rubicon we have this notion that that was some sort of point of no return and and we've read it into and how caesar has broached something that that made the civil war inevitable and yet as you explained that's not necessarily how it was and how in fact that the whole notion that there was a rubicon to be crossed what was in, in itself something that was maybe uh, a, a product perhaps of fiction or perhaps exaggerated and that there was in fact not that there was no such conflict preordained even at that point Yes, um, that's that's a so that's a, um, a a fun part of the book, I have to say. Uh, as I sort of dug into the, you might say almost the sort of mythology 
of the crossing of the Rubicon. It really is uh, uh, deep layers of, <laughs> you might say, you know, myth and misinformation and, and, and so on. But it's also, you know, interesting to see how these things develop and to some extent why they develop. So for uh, the crossing of the Rubicon itself, I mean, the, to put it bluntly, the point I make about it not being um, the uh, classic, uh, not meeting our classic definition of, of the phrase as, as crossing the, the point of no return um, is, you know, uh, actually, once again, to sort of look at the facts. First of all, you, you can you can um, you can criticize it on either side of the uh, of the chronological timeline, uh, because Caesar's crossing of the Rubicon uh, was actually um, a response to something that was far more decisive. If we're talking about the the moment where military conflict was kind of you know inevitable, military conflict was inevitable from the moment on January seventh, forty nine BC, that the Senate passed the so called final decree calling upon. Pompey and the magistrates to see to it that the state suffered no harm. This was a constitutional instrument that by now was about uh, seven years old, and it always ensued with you know police or military action. I mean, it was a in all respects, it was a declaration of war on uh, Caesar, and it was that was before the crossing of the Rubicon. So, if we're going to talk about what you know what forced the military phase of this dispute to, to sort of break out, that was the passing of the final decree a few days before. What was really remarkable about Caesar's crossing the Rubicon, which I, I just want to, you know, point out to listeners or remind many of them, no doubt, that, you know, it's this nondescript little stream rivulet, almost like a drainage ditch uh, that really just served as the administrative boundary between Caesar's province of Cisalpine Gaul, which we would call North Italy, everything north of modern Rimini, basically. Uh, that was Caesar's province of Gaul, this side of the Alps. South of the Rubicon, which was a little bit north of uh, Rimini or Riminum in the ancient uh, in Latin, South of the Rubicon was Italy and was not part of his province. When he crossed the Rubicon, he was leaving his province and advancing into Italy, which, of course, does look pretty aggressive. But, um, you know, it, once, the, once war was essentially declared on Caesar, we can't be really too shocked about his leaving his province, I think. Um, so that's that's one point I make. The other point I make, which is probably less familiar even to historians, is that, uh, you know, we happen to have, I think it's 90 or 100 letters of Cicero's that are almost daily for this period from early in January uh, on down for the next few months um, of what has gone down in history as Caesar's invasion of Italy. Well, it's a kind of funny invasion because Caesar crosses the, the Rubicon, enters the first town in Italy, Rimini, and then sits down and stays put and talks peace for somewhere between one week and two weeks while ambassadors are going back and forth. In other words, he doesn't charge on, lead a blitzkrieg and so on. He sends out letters uh, uh, requesting uh, uh, peace talks and proposing a, a peace arrangement and so on. And those are that is not actually resolved and ultimately uh, collapses until 
you know, the end of the end of January, which is, uh, you know, about 20 days, a little bit less after he has crossed the Rubicon. So uh, and in fact, we read in Cicero's many, many letters of this period where he private letters where he's really to a greater extent than anywhere else, bearing his soul to his friend uh, Atticus, who's uh, staying actually in Rome. Um, uh, we hear of, you know, Cicero's frankly, uncertainty uh, about whether conflict has really been begun or whether it's about to be resolved. Uh, there are peace talks going on and so on. And so we have, in, even though we now have armies marching around and there definitely is a sort of military phase, this conflict, it's not until Pompey sails off from Italy and Caesar uh, returns from the southern port of Brindisium toward Rome, that Caesar, in his account, even talks about having to fight a war, how the, how the war is on. Um, and so I think, I think it's important to recognize that there's this period of, of real uncertainty, not perhaps in Pompey's mind, but real uncertainty about whether there really, it really was coming to a civil war, a full bore civil war, or whether this serious dispute was uh, was about to be uh, settled, and it took months for that to be uh, sorted out. So the crossing of the Rubicon proves to be, to some extent, a misleading uh, point of emphasis. If you emphasize that exclusively, it looks like Caesar is just blatantly the aggressor, sort of charging into Italy and. And that leads to all kinds of misconceptions. Um, uh, for one thing, people usually assume that, you know, he charges, he marches on Rome. Uh, Mussolini in 19, 1922 staged his own Marcia su Roma when, you know, from more or less the same area. Mussolini was actually from the area uh, toward Rome in which, you know, he sort of essentially began his, his coup. Um, clearly modeled in some sense on uh, Caesar's action. And the trouble is that Caesar didn't march on Rome. He was very careful not to march on Rome because that would be seen as an extremely aggressive move. Instead, he marched down the back of Italy and tried to catch up to Pompey. Now, what he was going to do if he caught Pompey was not immediately clear. Cicero wonders whether he just wants to kill Pompey or something. Caesar kept saying he wants to have a discussion about how to settle this matter. Um, which had, since no serious blood had yet been spilled, uh, which, you know, was possible still to bring back from the brink. And that gets to something that you do actually throughout the book, but it becomes, uh, you, you do focus on it a bit more at, at this point in, in your, in the, in the text, which is how you're using uh, this to also try to get at Caesar's values. You, you talk a, a lot about uh, dignitas when it comes to how he's presenting himself uh, it, it, over the course of the wars. But here you're talking about Caesar's leniency and, and, and how, and, and how this, comes to be portrayed and how and the importance of this in terms of understanding this aspect of Caesar's life it is it is something that I, I don't think you can uh, as you made clear you can't really separate from how he might have dealt with with Pompey he wouldn't have necessarily have ordered Pompey's execution and then forgiveness for everyone else when he demonstrated uh, both from this point onward and throughout the Civil War that he could be almost forgiving to a fault if, if, especially considering uh, what would lie ahead. Uh, absolutely right. I think here's another example where the the teleology of of Caesar's 
endpoint uh, as dictator for life um, has kind of determined our examination of a specific phase, a specific phenomenon, which is Caesar's so-called clemency, or as I prefer to say, since that was the terminology he used, his his leniency. Because uh, one thing is indisputable, was that he was incredibly lenient to his opponents in the Civil War. Um, you know, I, I, you know, try to work up a list of uh, over, you know, 60 odd characters, prominent characters, significant enough, really significant enough to be noted in our sources and so on, who surrender to Caesar or captured and are pardoned by Caesar, uh, as far as we know, and in many instances, demonstrably uh, get their property back or are encouraged to continue their political careers and this sort of thing. This kind of leniency was truly extraordinary. And I think what people sometimes miss is just how extraordinary it was against the background of the Roman civil wars of the 80s fought between the adherents of Sulla and the sort of adherents and, and successors of Marius. Those were such uh, savage uh, um, uh, wars that uh, clearly the, Caesar uh, actually refers back to them in a, in, a, in a letter, makes it clear that he has nothing but, you know, revulsion for that kind of uh, that kind of uh, conflict among citizens. And so he lays down this sort of policy rule that uh, no citizen is to be, uh, you know, killed except in the battle line, you know, opposing him. Um, <clears throat> now, <laughs> so where the teleology really kind of works its magic is that Historians who are convinced that Caesar has in mind this sort of autocratic future um, that is, is, you know, inferred from some other things, the, the future itself, I guess. Um, this, these acts of generosity and leniency, which otherwise might be fit into a framework of, um, you know, restoring peaceful relationships among equal citizens, uh, revival of institutions in which you have to accept that, you know, for example, your political opponents are not your enemies and so on. Uh, so a, a kind of a policy that might be thought of as pointing toward that kind of vision of the future of, in fact, restoring Republican institutions in some essentials, at least, at least not following previous precedent of massacring and uh, dispossessing all one's enemies so that they're no longer a, a force to be reckoned with. Uh, instead of instead of looking at this this remarkable policy choice by Caesar uh, that really stood out in antiquity and has ever since has been always you know sort of a fascinating aspect of Caesar. Um, if you if you want to see him as the aspiring autocrat, this is actually interpreted as just a, a really great way of grinding a Roman aristocrat's nose in the dust. You know, like you know, what better way to humiliate and destroy your enemies 
than to make them, you know, ask for mercy and worse yet, actually give them that mercy. <laughs> and this just seems to me so extraordinary. I mean, there are, you know, of course, it's not hard to find some hints in the sources that some aristocrats felt humiliated angry and so on and and some of these feelings you know clearly were you know activated in the run-up to the assassination and so on but to interpret this phenomenon which you know was <laughs> far more pervasive um than i think you know that could possibly have produced uh, as as nothing but that is is i think just kind of blinkered and a nice example of the teleology really just taking over one thing that I, I I keep thinking about in in terms of the those attitudes was not just the the, the sense of, of of humiliation that that they might have felt, but also if there might also have been a sense of dread because it, it, given that you know like Caesar, they're all product they, they all you know for them the you know what happened with, with Sulla was a lived experience, and it might have been difficult for them to imagine that that Caesar was more lenient than them and that was sincere, and and the idea that they were waiting in effect for the other shoe to drop, that they were waiting for Caesar to to reveal his full endgame, and they couldn't possibly believe that he'd be that lenient, seems to also inform the sense of, after the Civil War, what he would do. Mm -hmm. and, and this is, and this again plays to the tele teleological aspect, which is that the assumption is that he's heading towards a some sort of uh, monarchy, if, if not necessarily in name. And yet, as you make clear, that his, that, you know, the sources are actually, you know, are, are pretty, uh, you know, obviously points to this, you know, sense that he's, you know, he's not really, he's not dismantling the Republic. If he's instead focusing upon this new military operation and he's relying upon the Republic to continue to function in, in, a, in a reformed way while he goes and, and undertakes this war. Um, yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I, I do, um, I stress again how our perspective has been distorted by the end point of the story. Um, you know, we know, you know, listen, Mark, were you surprised at the ending of this book that Caesar got, got, got off, you know, got assassinated at the end? We all know where this story is going to end up, as did everyone else who told it retrospectively. I'll, I'll be I'll be honest. I, I didn't in, in one key respect. <laughs> and, and, and this is not to say that I was, I was surprised to find out that, that he had some stab wounds. I, I, it was it was the, the point that you make about how the assassination informs the teleology about how we because it, I, I love the way you frame it, but that uh, for, for there to be a tyrannicide, there had to be a tyrant. And I, I thought that was a great way of, of how how we retroactively decide we're going to have to make him into the destroyer of the Republic so as to create the ex post facto justification for what has been done. Yes, uh, thank you for, for picking up on that point, because I think that is uh, truly important. Um, that gave a really important impetus toward to, you know, I think the sort of basic modern conception of Caesar's uh, assassination as being, you know, essentially deserved because of his um, outrageously tyrannical uh, actions. Um, this theory of, of the justice of killing a tyrant or an aspiring tyrant, um, 
you know, in extra legal fashion, just taking it in your own hands to, to murder such a person who either was or would seem to be aiming toward that is actually, you know, is, is not something that was um, sort of preordained in, in Roman history. It was uh, the, um, there are some Roman kind of historical myths that, that um, evoke this idea reach back reaching back to the earliest phases of the of the um, uh, of the Roman Republic um, but it, but um, I think the assumption which people often have that this was you know sort of a credo that every Roman would sign on to that if somebody's acting in a in a arguably tyrannical fashion or at least you can claim that he's operating in a tyrannical fashion it, it is right and proper to to kill him, you know, sort of <laughs> by whatever means necessary, is is not, in fact, you know, well-founded in Roman um, Roman history. I mean, the last tyrant who, or last king who was remembered as a tyrant um, uh, before the foundation of the Roman Republic was driven out, was not, you know, was not assassinated. So uh, there might be a tradition that tyrants were not to be given their opportunity to rule and might even in extreme cases be driven out of Rome, but uh, there wasn't, you know, a sort of set doctrine that anyone who acted in a way that I might call tyrannical, therefore uh, had his, you know, his life was uh, forfeit. So, uh, so after the assassination, it was absolutely crucial to develop this ideological position very forcefully. And Cicero does it very forcefully in in writings after the assassination of Caesar. Um, uh, As far as I can trace it, there's not a peep of this uh, with regard to Caesar from Cicero's pen before, uh, certainly before the Civil War and and, um, in practice, I think, uh, before 44 uh, itself. Um, This is a, you know, retrospective theory that then puts its stamp on the story that makes the story all about, you know, was Caesar justifiably assassinated and therefore leads to the question that ever consumes just about everyone examining this, this period. Did Caesar want to be made a king or something like a king? You see how that follows from that kind of setting of the agenda. Uh, and, and the move I make is to say, you know, uh, th- this question has attracted all the attention because of the assassination itself and its post facto justification. But in fact, what was going on was the launching of the attempt to launch this uh, this greatest military expedition that you know Rome had ever <laughs> had ever undertaken to uh, to kind of shore up the seriously. Um, um, the kind of dangerously insecure Eastern frontier against the Parthian Empire, which had been, um, you know, uh, um, threatened ever since uh, Crassus's heavy defeat there in in fifty three, and been a continuing sword, uh, sorry, thorn in 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 the Senate's and then Caesar's side uh, since then. Plus, I think there's, you know, some reason to speculate that Caesar may have seen this as one solution to the problem of division uh, in the state, which was the fundamental problem of the civil war. How do you re-stitch the two halves of this community together? 
Well, one, uh, one uh, uh, plan, which uh, I think many others have followed, is to unify the society uh, to avenge itself uh, against an external enemy uh, that had proved to be a serious threat. Uh, incidentally, you know, there may, some, there may be some who think that this book is a kind of uh, apologia for Caesar, because I, I, I do argue that he's not, you know, uh, at least demonstrably, provably aiming at tyranny or anything of the sort. Uh, but, you know, I think it's important to recognize that uh, I'm certainly not trying to excuse Caesar of having uh, views that we would absolutely find unacceptable. He was an extremely aggressive imperialist. Uh, he was merciless against uh, his, uh, uh, at least foreigners who resisted him. He was very merciful to Roman citizens. But uh, in Gaul, uh, his, his methods were often quite savage, if still in keeping with Roman uh, norms. Uh, and this, this project of uh, a war against Parthia um, may very well have been an attempt to sort of unify the, the shattered halves of, of the Roman state in this great, you know, military campaign, which, you know, obviously we would find uh, abhorrent, but uh, I think um, we can see later in, in connection with Caesar's heir, Augustus, that that's exactly how the prospect of a campaign against the Parthians was viewed. In your conclusion, you uh, re return to the, the question of the, of the teleology. And it's, it's, a, it's an examination that gets to the, that if, uh, to go back to what we were talking about at the beginning, the question about whether the Republic was doomed to failure, uh, you know, or did Caesar murder it, or was he just simply putting it out of its misery? And this is a question that I was, as I was reading, I, I found to be especially relevant because of the way that we oftentimes use the history of the Republic as a marker or a yardstick for our, you know, kind of contemporary, uh, the contemporary world. I mean, it's not something that's unique to us. You can read it back in, you know, the Americans were, were questioning this, say, in the 1950s. Uh, the British were questioning it back in the, you know, in, in their history as well. And, and it, it's interesting how, you know, so much of that is is dependent upon that teleological reading of of Caesar's uh, life and, and how if you move away from that, it really does reframe not just how we view Caesar and the fall of the Republic, but how we use the Republic to consider these issues today. Yes, thank you for that. I, I didn't want to make the book an overtly political one, but um, but careful readers will, I think, sense that um, well, we'll we'll pick up on the truth, which was that the the book was really begun, really got seriously underway in President Obama's second term, when he seemed to be obstructed at, at every turn, um, and uh, then was completed under Donald Trump's presidency with, you know, right up to, I mean, I had just sent it in when the January 6th insurrection uh, occurred. And so, you know, it, it's been noted that, uh, you know, every history is contemporary history. And I think that's a good thing, actually. That's why we, isn't that why we read history? I mean, like, um, so um, I think that, and I, you know, I would join everybody 
everybody else far more serious thinkers than I and saying, you, you know, you can't just draw lessons directly from history. But let's face it, the, the, the end of the Roman Republic has been the, I think, the classic example from the ancient world of, uh, of a republic uh, self-destructing. And when we add on to that fact that um, this, that the American Republic was founded essentially on the principles of sort of tripartite division and checks and balances that uh, are were uh, fundamental to the Roman Republican uh, Constitution. It was based in many respects uh, uh, on the Roman uh, Republican Constitution as a model. There's just no way that the story of the end of the Republic can be. Um, sort of indifferent to America, of indifferent interest to uh, Americans, and especially when, you know, we come to a point where we feel we are in, you know, a kind of crisis of our uh, of our own democracy, a sort of crisis point reached the last January uh, or second to last January six from now, and you know, perhaps perhaps still uh, continues. So, um, yes, there. Uh, I I think. One of the a larger agenda I have in this book is to get away from, I think, a very naive reading of that fall as basically a matter of good guys against bad guys. And in that story, as it has been told by, you know, people with the best of intentions, Democrats and, and people, Republicans in the sense of, of, of believers in a republic, not in the terms of the political party as such, um, it, it's a story that has sort of caught fire with us uh, because it it gives us you know a sort of nice example of what to you know what to avoid a Caesar like villain who's going to you know take over our republic from the inside and what to you know support maybe a, a Cato like uh, you know defender of republican freedom that very simplistic story I've just told, uh, has been very compelling to generations and generations of, of, of uh, not just Americans, but uh, thinkers everywhere. Um, incidentally, you know, uh, supposedly, I never really check whether this is true, George Washington is supposed to have put on at, at Valley Forge to raise the morale of his, uh, of his battered army, uh, put on a, a performance of Addison's play called Cato, in which Cato is, of course, the great hero of Republican freedom. And you can imagine, you know, Caesar is, is, doesn't come off very well from that kind of perspective. And the tyrannicide, tyrannicide ideology is actually something that, you know, is very strong in the American psyche. Uh, look at the state seal of the of the state of Virginia. Seek uh, semper tyrannis. This is what happens to tyrants always, showing the prostate body of, of the tyrant below. Um, so this is a very sort of precious story to Americans. But in fact, I think again, a little historical examination of, of the facts and the facts reported by our best sources really problem, problematized this. And so, you know, I'm trying to tell a story in which Caesar is not the, the villain who's trying to, you know, conquer the Republic and make it submit to his, uh, his, his power, uh, but trying to succeed, probably outperform the greatest figures of Roman history, uh, according to the Republican rules of achievement. Uh, 
from his, you know, given the line he took, military achievement uh, above all, military honor and glory, which had been denied him after his Spanish victories when, you know, he wasn't able to celebrate his triumph, but now he had achieved uh, in Goal. Well, if you get away from that naive story of, of kind of good guys versus bad guys, you know, then it then it's, becomes a lot more problematic uh, to try to figure out, you know, what happened? How does this system come crashing down? How does it how, how does it break down? Um, and it was actually my 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 mentor, Eric Gruen. Um, back in in the 70s who made the point at the time very controversial uh but made the point that um uh uh it was it, uh, civil war um was not caused by the fall of the republic but the other way around in other words um civil war came about not because the Republic was in an advanced state of collapse, and so the inevitable next step was just uh, civil war. But the Republic was actually functioning institutionally, but a civil war occurred. Note how carefully I've phrased that. A civil war occurred, uh, which was actually responsible for destroying the Republic. Uh, now, this was almost laughed out of court when it first came out in 1974. Interestingly, over the, you know, 50 odd years that have followed, this has been taken more and more seriously uh, as we've looked carefully at the story of the institutions of the Republic before the year 49, when the when this uh, Caesarian Civil War breaks out. And we can see, you know, actually the, the Senate and the people and the Senate and people together dealing with challenges yes there were there were problems as you know virtually every republic has its problems um, but we also see the senate and people and political leaders uh, dealing effectively with these problems uh, so that it becomes more and more implausible that the you know that the race publica as the romans called it was just in a shambles and just waiting to be sort of uh, tipped over. In fact, far more plausibly, as I, you know, argue in my book, it's the almost 20 years of cycles of civil wars that follow from the year 49 that destroy the Republic, not, not uh, you know, the supposed rot or whatever it was, you know, before the civil war that, you know, sort of brought the civil war uh, about. So, and in fact, in that story of the cycle of civil wars that destroyed the Republic, it's actually the, the cycle of civil wars that are, that are set off by this incredibly emotive event of assassinating Caesar on the floor, the hallowed floor of the Senate, assassin, assassinated by men whom he had spared you know, in thanks for his leniency that has really, really hit hard over the centuries. And it certainly hit the Roman people hard um, at the time. That had enormous emotional power. Um, the, the sheer bloodthirsty treacherousness, as it was, I'm not necessarily, you know, saying all this, but as it was seen by, it seems, a very large portion of the Roman people, what meant that it provided the the material, the kindling, if you like, for the continuation of the civil wars that would follow. Um, and so, in fact, paradoxically, I mean, you could argue 
a, a little bit tongue in cheek that it was the assassination of Caesar that caused the fall of the Republic, or at least had a very large role to play in the fall of the mm -hmm. Republic because of the way in which it accelerated the destruction of institutions that is in the, the almost inevitable um, consequence of civil war. Civil war is itself, a, you know, the end of normal institutional procedure. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, yeah, I mean, this, this, this is a, a fat book. You've been kind in not, not mentioning that to the <laughs> listeners. So yeah, it's a pretty long I, book. I think of it as substantial. <laughs> a substantial <laughs> book that has taken a lot of my life to, to write. So I must say I'm still recovering from, uh, from the, the, the long effort to write it. I sometimes wondered whether I would, you know, live to see the conclusion. <laughs> but now that it's, you know, safely in the rearview mirrors, I'm, I'm currently uh, sort of unfortunately finishing off some some smaller commissions, chapters and books and so on that I that I agreed to in the midst of this project and then I had to sort of hold off until until it was over. But I think the next big project I, I envision um, is to confront full on the, the story of the fall of the Roman Republic now or the end of the Roman Republic. Um, you know I, I this is not a book that is focused on the question of, you know, why did the Republic end, even though I have some thoughts about that, that I introduce at various points, but that, that's not its front and center topic. Uh, I'm hoping that it's relevant to the larger argument about why the Republic ended as it did, but not that I've taken on the problem in full in this book, or I've rather sort of pointed toward, you know, my view of a, of a solution. What I think I'd like to do, because I don't think this has been done in a very long time, is, is uh, devote a book to a full-on uh, examination of the end of the Roman Republic, or maybe you could say, as I've as I've argued in the past, the transformation of the uh, of the Roman Republic uh, into a sort of imperial structure um, in all its dimensions, uh, not just, of course, the agency of powerful political leaders, which tend to, you know, take up most of my attention in a book like this on Julius Caesar and the Roman people, uh, but also the, you know, broader economic and social issues that have often been, you know, brought into the argument, although I think not conclusively proven to be significant uh, causal forces in the uh, in the end of the republic i'd, I'd like a sort of full-scale multi-dimensional examination of this incredibly important phenomenon and world historical uh, significance of the sort that i don't think has really been undertaken now for about 50 years i think it's time for an update now that's too big a project for me so i'm very seriously considering making this a sort of team effort and selecting at least a small team to to grab you know portions of this really complex question that are you know that are you know most in line with their expertise and and putting you know giving an opportunity to a variety of, uh, of scholars to uh, present their take on um, the very uh, complex causation that you know results in the transformation of the Roman Republic into an empire. Well, it sounds like a very worthy project, and I look forward to seeing it when it comes out. Thank you.
Uh, Bob, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you, Mark. Thanks for the great questions.